Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. My guest today is Carlos Martin. Carlos is project director of the Remodeling Futures program at the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University. And I might add, he's one of our newest university fellows here at Resources for the Future, which I'm super happy about. So before joining Harvard, Carlos spent two years at the Brookings Institution as a David M. Rubenstein Fellow. And prior to that, he was a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. And we're going to actually talk to Carlos about some of the work he did there. So he's had a really interesting research career working on a variety of topics and issues, but the thread through all of them is really housing. And these days, much of Carlos's housing work is centered one way or another around climate change. So he works on housing adaptation to climate change, disaster mitigation recovery, and housing decarbonization. And we're going to chat with Carlos about all of these things on the show today. So stay with us. Hello, Carlos. Welcome to Resources Radio. It's so nice to have you coming on the show today. Thanks so much for inviting me, Margaret. I've been listening to Resources Radio for years, so it's a real treat to be on this side of the radio. Oh, nice. Yeah. So if you've been listening, you know I have to ask you our starting question, which is really to learn a little bit about you and how you came to kind of work on housing issues and the and the the things that you work on today. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, uh, usually, I always get tickled when I hear about the stories from other uh, um, interviews that have played out in Resources Radio with people describing sort of how they lovely memories of national parks that they visited in their youth. Um, my perspective is a little different. So I'm the son of immigrants, of Mexican immigrants. My folks were rural farmers in Mexico, but I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And as a kid, we'd go back to the farms and the nearby town where my parents came from every summer. And um, I learned at a very early age that the environment is hard work <laughs> and it's something to be respected. And fortunately, I think all of us that work in the environment and climate spaces have all come to the same places, despite our various backgrounds. Um, but that always played a very big role in my thinking about how important it is that um, the environment is something that requires a lot of attention but in a very different way than just sort of the appreciation and the, and the aesthetic love of it. I should note that there was one other significant path on my journey here, though, and that's that seeing our relationship as humans to the natural environment through our homes and on the farms that my parents grew up in. The homes literally were the shelter from the storm. Um, then as an immigrant family, I also witnessed how the American dream manifested in their home ownership and how it can easily become a nightmare for so many because of historical housing discrimination. So I went into uh, my training as an architect and civil and environmental engineer specifically because of that interest in exploring how our homes mediate this relationship between who we are socially and economically and the environmental context in which we live. And that's ultimately how I got here. Yeah, that's great. We're going to explore that a little bit more here, I think. So I want to start with you, Carlos, first kind of big picture and ask you if this isn't too big of a question. Why are housing issues so important when we're trying to meet the climate challenge, both sides of the climate challenge, lowering emissions to address the problem and building resilience to the impacts? Can you say just big picture? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's ultimately is the centrality of our housing and how we define our communities and how we draw that line between our human and natural environments. Um, if you think about it, every study that we talk about when we're looking at different demographic groups, for example, 
talks about where people's homes are located. I mean, that's the data that we use, right? It's a residential location. And the different strands that we're talking about that you mentioned, the both the lowering emission, the decarbonization aspects, as well as the building resilience, um, have played out in the same way with regard to the housing, the physical housing units and how the households that occupy those units. I mean, fully decarbonizing homes is an imperative and one we've been working on since the 1970s oil crisis, right? And when the president put solar panels on the people's home, which is the White House um, back in the, in the late 70s. But we're still pretty far off considering the range of political debates over things like gas stoves. But um, more importantly, it's the persistence of existing housing equipment, appliances, construction, and that's decarbonizing side of it. Um, on the climate adaptation side of it, and I'm going to talk a little bit in silos, and I apologize for that because the whole purpose of my work is how do we de-silo these things, and housing is a perfect de-siloer, but let me switch to that second silo, and that's um, how housing is ground zero for climate adaptation. So when we talk about climate exposures, uh, we're usually talking about places and properties in communities, so physical things. And nationally, when we propose adaptation solutions, they either focus on mitigating individual homes like flood elevations and fireproofing or building the infrastructure that protects those residential communities. So when we speak about risk levers, um, we also talk about home hazard insurance. So there are so many ways in which housing is the vehicle for either our climate emissions reduction goals or our climate adaptation goals. And that relationship between our environmental conditions and our housing goes back some time. I mean, the environmental justice movement, the green building movement, the healthy housing movement, they've all been waving these banners for decades. Um, so um, I think climate adds to this conversation about housing, um, but ultimately both mitigation and adaptation, we must address the housing markets and housing policy um, in order to successfully deal with those concerns. Mm -hmm. oh, well put. So I, I, I want to start with one of the silos, Carlos, and that's the resilience side of things. So, and I want to specifically tell folks about a large study that you led when you were at the Urban Institute that looked at resilience outcomes in the greater New Orleans area post-Katrina. So that report just came out last month, and it's really great, and we'll put a link to that in the on our website. But I want to ask you first just to describe what you did in that study and what you found, but I really was taken, and I promise I read more than the executive summary, but I was really taken <laughs> by the first lines in the executive summary, so I just wanted to read those first, and you've already started talking about this, and, and what you wrote is, housing is a first line of defense, particularly for households that are vulnerable to environmental shocks and not equipped to recover from them. The home is the primary physical barrier, financial asset and neighborhood stabilizer. Housing resilience, homes and households' capacity to withstand, adapt, and thrive in the face of acute and chronic hazards is untenable where quality, fair, and affordable housing is in jeopardy. So I just want to ask you first to elaborate a little bit on this. I mean, you already have a, a little bit, but I love the that beginning. Yeah, that line was intentional on many counts, not just to start off the whole conversation. I mean, it's a 400-page study, um, so uh, trying to synthesize the importance of housing in this context. But it was also meant sort of as a call, um, particularly to remind those of us, especially those of us in the climate environment spaces, about the fundamental issue of housing and the crisis that housing finds itself in today. That's as much at stake when we are making environmental policy. So basically, that line is a wake-up call for the community to learn more about housing and its broader socioeconomic context. I mean, I always like to remind people that really the crisis 
of housing is that crisis that we're going to see in climate change. Most low and moderate income households and historically most households of color haven't had housing options, uh, you know, both where they can live and the kind of housing in which they can live. Um, and this affects not just things like exposures to things like climate change's effects, but also basic functions in their lives um, and financial and health effects. In this country, housing is a historical marker of the haves and the have-nots. Um, so um, housing policy is very complicated, as complicated as environmental policy, and at some point the two have to meet. So that was the, that was the impetus for doing this whole study. Um, and um, I do want to sort of elaborate on the idea that that you know so much of when we're talking about from the climate environmental policy spaces, we're pushing the concept of some places being bad in quotes um, because of their high exposures. And that these places should not exist, that they should not be. I mean, but that's exactly what the Army Corps said um, after Hurricane Katrina about the Lower Ninth Ward and what was visibly mapped in the what's the now famous green dot um, map of the Bring New Orleans Back Commission. Um, and that's that's sort of a, a disregard and it's a lack of consciousness about the many residents that live in these places because they're the only places that they were allowed to live and they're the only homes that they were allowed to purchase. So our housing crisis. Um, are going to be intertwined with our climate crises. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I just want to make a comment. I, I think I've told you this before, Carlos, but I talked to people in Eastern Kentucky after those floods, really devastating floods in 2022, which completely destroyed many homes, killed 45 people. And I heard this quote, we already had a housing crisis. The floods just made the problem worse. So I think this is kind of what you're talking about is this related? What do you think they meant when they said we had a housing crisis in that region? Yeah, I mean, this is a national, the current national housing affordability crisis and access crisis. If you look at places like Lexington, Kentucky and Huntington, Ashland area of Kentucky, the Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, Nexus, um, their uh, share of renter households with cost burdens are right up there um, with the worst of the uh, of the country. My colleagues here at the Joint Center for Housing Studies just released our biannual renters report, for example, uh, which noted that half of all U.S. renters are cost burdened. This is an all-time high, right? 22 million renter households spend more than 30% of their income on their rent and related housing costs. Um, and then on top of that, that leads to evictions rising, uh, the country seeing higher accounts of homelessness, et cetera. So there, there's a housing crisis that's afoot, and that housing crisis is going to play out in our climate and environmental policy. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. So um, let's turn back to the New Orleans study then, and just let me just ask you, what were some of the major findings? I know there's a lot, but what are some of the highlights of what you found in that work? Yeah, so I, I should note that the the study was funded by the Gulf Research Program at the National Academies, and it was the first cohort of the Thriving Communities uh, Program. So this is going back to 2017. So this this <laughs> this report and this study have uh, gone through much evolution um, during the pandemic time, just in terms of data collection and the ability, the robustness of what we were able to do. Um, but the purpose was to look at the climate crisis from the perspective of actual households and the physical homes in places um, in which they live in the post-Katrina New Orleans area. 
is especially important for us to talk about housing there, given that so much attention has been paid to the broader infrastructure in Southeast Louisiana um, in the post-Katrina era. So the study included a massive survey fielding to gather information from post-Katrina home buyers, and it also included about 200 interviews with federal, state, and local actors uh, from multiple different sectors. Um, I do quickly go through the six areas that we studied, and then we could talk about some highlights from, from some of those studies. So one was looking at whether that regional infrastructure actually did lend to protections for different residential communities of different demographic backgrounds. The second was um, the community engagement that was involved um, with all of the planning that happened in the post-Katrina era and whether residents actually felt that they were actively participants, that their input was solicited and integrated into this planning. Third was uh, risk perceptions in relationship to their people's personal property and their community vulnerabilities, whether they perceive an increased risk from climate change, from various um, uh, climate change effects. Fourth was about risk information. So it was about how much information they received about their property before purchasing and as a consequence of purchasing the process of disclosures, et cetera. Fifth was um, the one that's getting a lot of attention, which is the property insurance coverage, pricing, and treatment. And there we really wanted to look at what the disparities were by uh, location, location being within a flood zone versus not a flood zone, and um, income and race and ethnicity, just to see if there were divergence there. It's really important just to highlight this fifth of the topics that we're talking about because there are virtually no um, non-proprietary surveys on home insurance. I want to give a shout out to my fellow and your uh, RFF uh, Resources for the Future University fellow, Dr. Carolyn Kuski, who was an advisor on the insurance portions of that instrument and the analysis that we did there. Um, um, and because there are so few surveys of homeowners that aren't maintained by the insurance industry, the instrument and data, we made the instruments and data available publicly. Uh, you can find those on the Urban Institute websites, and they have been shared with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, U.S. Census Bureau, and the Office of the Federal Insurers as they are developing insurance-related questions to their major survey instruments. So, so um, I'm sorry for pausing there for a second talking about that. Yeah, and the, the sixth part of the study was actual physical home mitigation improvements, like the rate and um, quality of the kinds of home mitigation improvements that people were doing as part of the purchase of their home or after purchasing. Yeah, so well, I want to ask you specifically about the, because uh, it caught my eyes, about risk information and disclosures. Maybe I'll go ahead and do that, and then I give some other major highlights, maybe on the insurance piece. But this kind of caught my eye. You uncovered some interesting findings about where people get their information about flood risks and how that varies across people of different income levels. So tell us what you found there, Carlos. Yeah, we found notable differences in information sources by income and house price. And if you think about it, if you've gone through a home buying process, there are a wide range of information sources of people talking to you and telling you information about the various homes that you may be purchasing and the one that you actually ultimately end up purchasing. But we did find that higher income households and households that bought homes of higher value use the formal information sources that included the inspection reports, disclosure statements, um, real estate agent information and property records to a, to some or are significantly higher rates than their lower income counterparts. Um, this is important to note because the state of Louisiana has always been viewed as the gold standard of uh, disclosure requirements, right? Requiring sellers to disclose tons of details, particularly around flood risk, flood um, experiences of a property, et cetera. Um, 
um, flood insurance requirements, any past repairs that have happened to a home because of, of a flood. Um, so um, all of that is required to be disclosed. But we found that many lower income households did not use these information sources at all at the time of home purchase. In fact, only about 39% of lower income households um, uh, did not reference those disclosures compared to 23% of higher income ones. So information is really important. We, I think we're at a point in the climate discussion and climate exposure discussion in this country where we're saying, you know, more information is better. Well, the reality is more information, only some people can act on it and only some people can understand it. And so it's incredibly important to look at the, sort of how this information is, is provided and whether people can act on it. And that's actually a good segue maybe to one of the other um, uh, key areas of findings uh, that we had around perception of risk. I mean, I could talk about that a little bit. Households of color, people with lower incomes, people with lower educational attainment were all significantly more likely to exhibit heightened perceptions of future hazard risks to their homes than their white, non-Hispanic, higher income, higher educated counterparts. And for households of color, for example, are nearly twice as likely to perceive hazard risks, uh, making race and ethnicity the greatest predictor of risk perception in our study. Um, that jives with most other studies, noting that people who have experienced some disparity in the past are likely to, to exhibit heightened perceptions of future risks, including environmental and climate risks. Um, but what I found was most important is that even though some of these households are likely to exhibit higher risk perception, the, we found that there was no difference in the extent to which these groups considered the risks while they were making their home purchase or acquisition choices. So this discrepancy suggests that disparities in risk um, mitigation action among households of color and people with lower incomes, people with lower educational attainment, all, there are all groups who are underserved and already vulnerable and who have fewer choices. They have fewer resources to translate their perceptions into material housing decisions. So um, uh, it's, it's a positive, I think, that uh, there is a group of uh, highly vulnerable people that perceive their risks and understand that they may be more at risk. The negative is that we don't have the institutional resources to make sure that they can act on those risks appropriately. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting finding. So, I mean, that might lead into kind of a big question I have for you, Carlos, and from what you learned in that big study that you did, and I know other work you've done around resilience and housing and especially equity and justice, let me ask you what you think are some of the like low-hanging fruit policy solutions, some maybe three things or whatever you want to say that something that could really make a difference. And also maybe relatedly, are there policy bottlenecks or shortcomings that you see to sort of building resilience in communities, especially underserved and, and under-resourced communities? Yeah, yeah. I mean, much of our climate adaptation and resilience policy is essentially still disaster policy in this country. And so to the extent that we're seeing reforms um, in the federal disaster policy framework, and that includes the federal emergency management agencies, um, very recent changes to the individual assistance program that were announced last week, which were actually very positive. I'd encourage um, the listeners to see the how that switch, and this is an internal executive program rule a change that um, FEMA is considering um, that helps renters, especially um, people who don't own property, but also have, to have people access any additional assistance and resources more quickly um, than they have in the past. So there are these positive things that center the households 
and censor the reality that they may not have a house to live in immediately after an event um, and that they're going to need uh, more resources to either rebuild or think more thoughtfully about where they're going to live. Um, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, if you want to talk about the continuum disaster policy in, uh, that we have right now in the country, has also made great strides towards improving their um, disaster recovery community development block grants. And I also like to think that private insurance and actors are stepping up somewhat. We, in putting on my hat as a as the director of the Remodeling Futures Program, we know that disaster repairs are an increasing portion of homeowner improvement spending um, nationally. I don't know if that's a good thing, uh, obviously, because that means that there are a lot more disasters, but certainly people are willing to spend in the retrofit. So I think the the low hanging fruit is doing that kind of post disaster post event more thoughtfully that centers the housing and the households more i think where we're still lacking is the pre disaster event really what i would describe as really being the core of climate adaptation and this is good planning good regional thinking about where our housing should be how to appropriately consider historical housing contexts in different communities and making that transition towards a reduced exposure rate. Yeah, those are great points. Okay, I, I want to flip now to the other side of the climate change coin and talk about decarbonization, if that's okay. So first, can you just give our listeners a sense of how important buildings, residential buildings in particular, are in terms of emissions and kind of contributions to the climate change problem? Is that a fair question to ask you, Carla? Yeah, very much. I mean, it's a huge contributor to uh, particular CO2 emissions in the U.S. When you include source energy, buildings account for about 40% of all U.S. Uh, CO2 emissions, and housing is a little more than half of that. Um the that rate of emissions that we have just from our housing, for example, is the equivalent of Brazil or in Germany's uh, CO two emissions. I mean, we're talking about a major source of 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 contributions. And the reality is, since especially given the the amount of R and D that has occurred since the nineteen seventies for improving residential energy, um, much of it supported by the U.S. Department of Energy. And we have seen significant changes and improvements in energy efficiency and the take up of renewable, uh, residential renewable energy, et cetera. Um, but there's still large gaps and the gaps are particularly strongest for the low and moderate income households. And this is again, because they can't afford um, to make the improvements. In fact, we know from our remodeling uh, research, repair and improvement largely, um, that lower income households and households of color are more likely not to invest in repairs and improvements because they can't afford it. And when they do, they um, spend less than their uh, higher income households. So there's a real challenge in how we make this transition work um, for all um, housing and for all households. Yeah. Well, that brings me to my next question, which is, you know, there's this push to kind of electrify everything, as they say. And when it comes to housing, that means you know, heating, cooking, water heating, et cetera, should run on electric, not natural gas and other fuels. And so there's kind of a movement in that direction. And I want to ask you about this and what you think about it and the challenges we face. And also you were on a National Academy of Sciences committee that just came out with a report not too long ago called Accelerating Decarbonization in the United States. This is a massive study, I might add. And I assume you probably played a major role in the research on the built environment component. So what are some of the findings from the committee about 
this sort of electrification goal that we're trying to reach. Yeah, yeah. And it, you're right. I um, was co-authored that chapter on the built environment with um, Vivian Lofness. Essentially, our buildings are typically underestimated. We looked at the policy angles, much as the the reality of the the current state of housing um, and the housing, and because it was the built environment, we looked at the commercial buildings as well. And um, just from a policy angle, buildings um, are typically under misestimated, I would say, in energy policy or our third rail in a lot of ways. Um, uh, and that's mainly because so much in building and housing happens at the local level. So without massive investment, like um, we're seeing in the Inflation Reduction Act, et cetera. Um, so much is dictated by the local um, uh, local decision-making processes. Another reason, I think, is the power of the building's lobby. So much of our residential energy policy levers are for new appliance standards and new building codes. And these are all focused on new housing, right? But most of our residential climate and energy R&D um, uh, is focused on that. So we're not dealing with the reality that 99.2% of homes that will exist next year have already been built, right? They're existing. I, I always joke, uh, we're now at the, uh, the oldest median age in our homes in this country. We're over 40 years old. So we're at entering midlife <laughs> and we're entering <laughs> midlife crisis, right? With our housing. And so we, we have, there are basic, there, there's still substandard housing in this country, but there, we're also expecting a lot more of our housing in terms of energy performance, as well as climate resilience, right? Um, that homes built in the seventies and eighties, even homes built during the last huge boom in 2006, 2007, um, just are not equipped to do. So there's a major transformation that has to happen. Um, um, but we have to be able to think about that. What the, I like going back to your comment about low hanging fruit. Um, so much of what I think is the barrier, um, to any real change is money, leadership, and clarity of goals. You know, housing policy has a lot of silos. Um, and so uh, finding out where that money, that leadership and clarity of goals comes from is going to be a real challenge. I know um, in a Resources Radio podcast, a colleague of mine spoke about that, the same study, the decarbonization report, uh, committee's report, Dr. Julie Haggerty um, talked about the importance of state and local leadership, as, uh, and I'm going to reiterate that. But I would also like to add the importance of local civil sector groups. Um, that have not just been great activists, but in many cases have been really incredible, helpful service providers. And I'm talking about groups like Elevate in Chicago that are actually doing load and moderate income household decarbonization. Um, in some cases, full electrification as well as energy efficiency improvements. Um, because those are the opportunities where you actually have groups working with that are trusted entities that are working with the local um, households and they understand their housing very well. So our report really, um, the decarbonization report that the National Academies Committee released, um, really has very similar recommendations. One, that we can do more with our housing. The challenges are um, the increase, uh, the necessary increases in resources, particularly for low-income households and property owners across all income levels. So we talk a lot in the report about the weatherization assistance program as being um, a highly underutilized, um, but still very highly siloed program. So there are a lot of opportunities for reforming that, for thinking about expanding it to make sure that all of the households that, that I mentioned that can't afford any kind of improvement 
um, even with um, uh, rebate programs, tax credits that came out of RA, um, that they have access to that kind of beneficial outcomes from decarbonization. Right. Yeah, the weatherization assistance program I know did get, which is run by the states, was DOE funded, got a, quite a bit of money, I think, in the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law. And then I want to ask you, you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, and there's a lot of incentives laid out in the IRA for electrification, rooftop solar, renewables, uh, community solar, and so forth, and a lot targeted to low-income households and communities. So what do you think about what's in there? Are there hurdles to kind of accomplishing the goals that are in the IRA, or um, how how are you feeling about that big piece of legislation when it comes to housing and um, decarbonization? Yeah, well, like most folks in this space, I was ecstatic with the with the IRA's um, uh, allotment of both tax credits and rebates, and thought, you know, they're giving some thought and combined with the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act's weatherization funds. I mean, there are these pots of understanding that extremely low income households need a broader amount of assistance, that low to moderate income households just can't afford the upfront costs. Whereas upper income households can afford to pay for an event and just need an additional financial incentive, which manifests in the tax credits that um, were expanded. So, so it, it was a nice mix. And we certainly see um, there that even though that it's a very positive step forward, it's not going to change every house in this country. There are a limited amount of resources in the rebate programs and weatherization assistance. So it's not enough money to transform every low to moderate income household over the next decade, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. Um, I think what the challenge is in the implementation, and this is, I'm sure, true. Everybody who's listening right now is going to note that the implementation is the number one challenge. We noted this in the National Academies decarbonization report. And I should say, um, full disclosure, I'm completing this study for the U.S. Department of Energy that both attempts to measure the quantitative gaps between what the range of energy retrofit needs and the resources provided. There's a big gap, that's no surprise. But there are also some interesting qualitative findings about how to serve these communities. And a lot of energy, local utility um, efficiency programs, as well as um, public programs at state and local level, refer to these communities as hard to serve. And again, a lot of the question comes down to who is the conduit of information? Uh, is the conduit trustworthy? And will the quality of work vary depending on whether the household is low to moderate income or um, higher income? So there's some real like just physical uh, marketing outreach campaign and actual active like the physical intervention. I think that's going to vary for low to moderate income households and other disadvantaged communities. So um, I certainly say that there are still some hurdles to overcome. Right. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard a lot of stories about that too. So Carlos, we're out of time here. And I, as you know, we close the podcast with a feature we call top of the stack. So I have to ask you now, to recommend to us a book or an article or a podcast or anything that's caught your attention lately that our listeners might be interested in? What's on the top of your stack? Yeah. So I have to say, I've, I've like I said, I've listened to Resources Radio for years. This is always my favorite part. I mean, the content is always great, but I always enjoy hearing what people are reading. Um, so 
uh, I have to deliberate about this one significantly. So I'm going to give you two. And one was I'm going to do a shout out to uh, a colleague, uh, Dr. Allison Plyer at the Data Center in New Orleans, who was a partner in the New Orleans work in terms of providing data and providing information about data sources in the New Orleans area. But her and a team that she works with, um, with uh, through Pathways to Prosperity, just released the Building Climate Resilience Report, lots of housing included in it. Um, so I'd recommend that people look for that. I think it's available at p2pclimate.org, and it just came out this week. So that's the first, um, just to, to continue to add to the conversation about climate and housing. The second one is one, I mean, we've talked a little bit about my, my circuitous route through the world of environment and climate and housing um, and the, uh, the research space. And certainly I've been a big advocate of breaking down those silos and hopping through boundaries. But um, at my heart, I'm still an environmentalist and a houser. But many people like me in this space know that when you hop through a lot of boundaries and bust a lot of salads, it's exhausting. So, and it's particularly more complicated when you're a person of color, a scholar of color in these spaces. And so this includes a lot of predominantly white spaces, like the DC think tank world has been in my background. So to get some inspiration, I've actually been rereading Dorsita Taylor's book, The Rise of the American Conservation Movement. So I'd put that um, as another, as a, uh, as a tie in for what I'm reading right now, what's at the top of my stack. That's great. I know Allison Plyer too, so I'm going to look forward to looking at that. Thank you so much, Carlos. I love those recommendations, and it's been a super big pleasure having you on Resources Radio and learning more about housing and climate change. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Always a pleasure, Margaret. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.